themes of hope and love and joy and peace. And then our celebrations culminate with a Christmas Eve service, which you're all invited to on that Monday evening at 6.30 p.m. And as well, and to mention again, if you're following along at home with Advent, don't forget to grab one of those small devotionals that we have for you called Prepare Him Room. They're full of uh, readings and devotions and stories and songs that you can sing by yourself or with your family. There's also a PDF of that along with some coloring pages for kiddos on our website under resources. Now this Advent, I don't know if you've noticed, we've done something with the sermons we haven't done before by sticking to Luke's account of the Christmas story. We started in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36, and then last week we looked at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and now this morning we're in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. We started with the announcement of Jesus and then moved on to the arrival of Jesus, and now today the angel's saying and song before the shepherds. In the late 1600s, Nahum Tate wrote a Christmas hymn about the text that we're studying today called, While Shepherds Watched Their Flocks. It is less known today, but it was very popular then. Let me read you the lyrics. While shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down and glory shone around. Fear not, said he, for mighty dread had seized their troubled minds. Glad tidings of great joy I bring to you and all mankind. To you in David's house this day is born of David's line, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign the heavenly babe you there shall find, to human view displayed, all meanly wrapped in swaddling cloths and in a manger laid. Hallelujah, 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 Christ is born. All glory be to God on high, and to the earth be peace, goodwill henceforth. From God to man, begin and never cease. So that is the account that we will consider this morning. And as we do, remember that this is God's Word. And in God's Word alone, we learn who we are and more and most importantly, who God is. And if this Word of God is preached and inspired by God, then it will result in your good and God's glory. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, would you fill our minds with truth? Would you fill our hearts with desire? And will you move our wills to trust, to honor, and to obey you. We pray that you would give us joy today. Joy that is grounded in the good news of the gospel. 
We pray that the way the good news came to those shepherds in that field, that the good news would come to our own hearts today, that some of us would hear for the first time, that the rest of us would be reminded the good news that Jesus Christ has been born and he is the Savior of the world. So give us joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own your own Bible, you will find today's text on page 556. Our theme today is joy, and we will end up asking two questions after we work through our text. What is joy? Be the first question. And then number two, what is the foundation of joy? So what is joy and what is the foundation of joy? Last week, we read the account of the birth of Jesus, and Luke now shifts scenes in his account from the manger to a nearby field where there are shepherds watching their flocks. Verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds would have been among the few awake at night. This is a time when most people are asleep. It's when you'd be asleep. It's when I'd be asleep. Shepherds would need to stay alert and awake at night. They had to protect their flock. They had to protect their sheep. And so they might get more rest during the day, but at night when predators were out, they needed to be awake. So they were, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. An angel appeared to the shepherds, and we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around them. I'm not going to presume to know what that looked like. I can't describe that in any kind of detail to you. It's not described in any kind of detail. We know that it was beautiful. We know it was intense. We know it was unmistakably supernatural. In other words, there was no natural explanation for this. This wasn't a, a star. This wasn't a, a shooting star. This wasn't a, a meteor. This wasn't the northern lights. This wasn't some kind of flash of light in the sky at night. This was a supernatural, unexplainable thing when this angel came and the glory of the Lord through, by, around this angel shown all around the shepherds. And it's obvious that to them, it was obviously supernatural because they were filled with great fear. Right? There's no explanation for this. We've never seen anything like this. This is, this is a power greater than anything we've ever seen. And when you're faced with that kind of power, you're terrified. Again, it's why people usually react in fear whenever angels appear to them in the Bible. So they were no different. They were filled with great fear. And so the angel has to do what the angel 
typically does, and that is reassure them. So the angel reassured the shepherds with these words, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy. There's our theme, joy. I will bring you news, he said, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He was a king, this baby was. He was a king, the Christ, the anointed one, the great rescuer who had been promised to God's people for generations. And he was born to a young, poor virgin, probably in a cave, and then laid to rest in a feeding trough. And now who are the very first people to receive the announcement of his birth? Is it the wealthy? Is it the influential? Is it royalty? Is it rich and powerful relatives? No. Shepherds. Shepherds in a nearby field tending their flock. These are very humble beginnings for this king. In fact, shepherds were largely despised in this day. Shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court. Shepherds were not allowed to testify in court because they were generally seen as being those who would lie and those who would illegally trespass with their flocks and, and not really care about it. They weren't looked up to. They, they weren't trusted. They were the dregs of society. And yet, God determined that they would be the first ones to receive the good news that Jesus had been born. So again, the humblest of beginnings. We, we couldn't contrive more humble beginnings if we were trying to write a story about humble beginnings of a king. Born to a young, poor virgin, probably in a cave, no crib or piece of furniture to put him down to rest in, but a manger, which is a feeding trough. And then who gets the first phone call that this baby has been born? It's not royalty, it's not the rich, it's not the prominent. It's just a bunch of shepherds, a bunch of dirty, despised shepherds that are awake in the middle of the night with their flock of sheep. Next in verse 12, the angel sends the shepherds. He makes the announcement and then sends the shepherds and tells them, what to look for. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There may have been that night several babies wrapped in swaddling cloths. There'd only be one baby in a manger. 
That's how you'll know that you found the right baby, the right child. And again, imagine hearing that news. A king has been born. You're, you're looking for this king. He's been born in Bethlehem. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths, and you will find him laying in a feeding trough. And then before the shepherds can pack up their stuff and leave, their angel was joined by other angels, and they all broke out in song. So it starts with one angel, joined by other angels, and they break out in song. Verse 13, and suddenly, again, supernaturally, they just appear out of nowhere like the first angel did. There was with the angel a multitude, and the word multitude means incalculable. It wasn't a few, it wasn't several, it wasn't hundreds, it was a multitude, it was incalculable. So imagine the sky just being filled with these angels. A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the angels, like Mary did, they burst out in song at the occasion of Jesus' birth. And then the shepherds responded to all this, verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The saying, remember, was he is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. They made known the saying. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. Then at some point, the shepherds had to get back to work. They left in this way, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Joy. The shepherds left the manger filled with joy. We're told glorifying and praising God. Glorifying God, rejoicing, praising. That is what joy does. Joy overflows into glorifying God. Joy overflows into rejoicing in God. Joy overflows into praising God. So the shepherds, when they left Mary and Joseph and Jesus, were filled with joy. They were praising God and were told, for because of what they had seen and heard. And what had they heard? Back in verse 10, the angel said, this is what they heard. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. They heard 
great news of joy. Then they saw with their own eyes that what they had heard was true. And now based on what they had heard and what they had seen, they left glorifying and praising God, filled with joy. The good news is that Christ the Savior had been born. They celebrated what what we're celebrating. What we're thinking about all month long. The advent of Christ. The birth of Jesus. He came. And he wasn't just any man. He was also God. And he came with a mission. And his mission was to be a savior. To save people from their sin. That was the good news of great joy. The good news that was validated when they saw Jesus just as they had been told they would find him lying in a manger. So now let's get to our two questions regarding joy. Two questions. What is joy? So what does that mean when we hear and see these shepherds filled with joy? What does it mean? What is joy? And then number two, what is the foundation of joy? Number one, what is joy? Let me give you a really simple definition. Joy is delight in God. Joy is delight in God or happiness in God. Let me read you three scriptures that describe joy without using the word joy. They describe delighting in God. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you're in a desert and you haven't had water for several days, and you see water, you're going to be very happy. This is what it means to delight in God. God is your water. You are spiritually thirsty. You have been made spiritually hungry. You have been made spiritually thirsty. In other words, it's not satisfied by food and drink on this planet. It's a thirst that's got to get met elsewhere. It's a hunger that has to get met elsewhere. You've been made thirsty. You've been made thirsty by God. You've been made thirsty by God for God. To push you to God. To draw you to God. Because He alone satisfies this thirst. And so this is joy. We delight in God. Job twenty-two twenty-five. Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. That's not literal, that's figurative. God is not actually a block of gold to you. God is not 
actually a block of silver to you, but he is like that in the same way that gold may be enjoyed and delighted in, in the same way that silver may be seen as precious, God is precious. And God is to be enjoyed. And God is to be delighted in. God is our gold. So God is our water to satisfy our deepest thirst. And God is our most precious possession. He is our gold. And then Psalm 43. Psalm 43 verses 4 and 5. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. So the psalmist here does use the word joy. I misspoke. But God is described here as my exceeding joy. And I will praise you. What does joy do? It praises. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. A lyre is an instrument, by the way. Not a person who doesn't tell the truth that you you get with to praise God. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is describing joy these verses are, and Psalm 43 is, the describing delight in God. And in Psalm 43, the psalmist, I think it's David, he is doing what he often does in the Psalms. Now, I wonder if you've noticed this. He asks himself questions, and then he answers his questions. You do this, and you do this all day, whether you know it or not. You're thinking thoughts, and you ask yourself things, and then sometimes you come to conclusions, and sometimes you don't. So the question he asks is, why are you not joyful, is what he's asking, because he's cast down. That's how he feels. He feels cast down. He's asking his own soul, why are you in turmoil within me? So he feels cast down. He feels like he is in turmoil. He's describing the opposite of joy. He's describing discouragement. He's describing deep anxiety. He's describing depression. Maybe he's describing despair. He had lots of circumstances around him that would threaten his joy, and it was getting the best of him. And he writes down on paper this internal dialogue that he has. He writes down his prayer, and he's asking himself, I believe frustratedly, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Why aren't you joyful? Why are you moping around? And then he preaches to himself, which I hope you do. Don't talk to yourself. Preach to yourself. And you preach with what? The Word of God. That's the difference with truth. You can tell yourself all kinds of things. Preach to yourself. 
the truth of God's word. So he asks, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then he rebukes himself. Hope in God, soul. Right? Hey, soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So here he is. He does not have delight in God. He's upset with himself and commanding himself to delight in God. You are saved, he's reminding himself. You serve God. Hope in him. Again, praise him. He is my God and my salvation. That's describing joy. Joy is delight in God. Not delight in stuff, not delight in your family, not delight in anything in this world. Not that there's something wrong with that, but joy, biblically speaking, is delight in God himself. And that is, incidentally, the only kind of happiness that is durable, that is robust, that is unshakable. If my happiness is rooted in anything other than God, it's only a matter of time before that happiness dissipates. Because everything in this life is broken. And everything in this life is fleeting. And everything in this life is only momentarily satisfying. God alone is the root of true, durable joy. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 3, where in the entire Bible, I'm most encouraged about how durable delight in God is. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. It starts with the word 17 through 19. It starts with the word Though, though, and now there's a, a negative list of circumstances. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's bad news. I know you don't have flocks, and when you're out of olive oil, you just run down to Trader Joe's, and you're not tending the field. But this is bad news for those originally reading Habakkuk chapter 3. This is bad news. This is, your life's falling apart. Your life's falling apart. You've got a family to feed. You've got a family to provide for. And you've just lost your job. And there's no prospect of another job. There's no money in the bank. There's no food on the table. There's no pure, clean water to drink. You're in big trouble. The circumstances are about as bad as they can get. So, though... The fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Though all that, yet, verse 18, in other words, in spite of all that garbage, 
yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Joy is delight in God. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Light feet, not heavy feet, not burdened down. Have you ever seen a deer run? It's like their feet don't even touch the ground. It's a beautiful thing to see. You've taken my burden. You've taken away the weight of these circumstances. I'm, I'm light as a feather in you. I'm like a deer bounding across the plains. I'm free. I'm joyful. Because I'm rejoicing in the Lord, the psalmist says. I'm taking joy in the God of my salvation. He alone is my strength. The truth is, and I think we all know this, Christian or not, you were made to be happy. You were made to be happy. We all know this. We call it the pursuit of happiness. There is a desire deep within all of us to be happy. And it's behind everything we do. Everything we do. Blaise Pascal has a famous quote where he talks about this. Everyone is driven by their desire to be happy. And he describes all these noble things that people might do in order to be happy. And then he says it is even at the root, it is the root desire of the man who hangs himself. Everything we do, everything we do is a pursuit of happiness. It would be going against our very nature to pursue unhappiness. No one pursues depression. No one pursues despair. No one pursues difficult circumstances because they enjoy the difficulty. They enjoy the trouble. We were made to be happy. We all pursue it. We encourage those that we love to pursue it. But what happens is we often or most of the time settle, settle. We're big settlers. We settle for what we think is true happiness, not knowing the real thing. And in general, this is what human beings do. Searching for meaning, searching for significance, searching for happiness. Desires given to us by God that will only be found in God. And so C.S. Lewis says the problem is we just don't desire enough. We don't want to be happy enough. And we are, to quote him, far too easily pleased. So we settle with the things of this world. And the momentary happiness that they might bring. But the truth is, as Augustine said in a prayer, God, thou hast created us for thyself, O God. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Joy can only be found in God. True happiness can only be found in God. Nothing else will be enough no matter how much of it you have. 
no matter how big it is, no matter how much other people covet and envy it. It'll never be enough. And so rightly, the first question and answer in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the main purpose of man? What is your mission in life? And it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you're here. You've been made to be happy, but you've been made to be happy in God. You've been made to be satisfied. You've been made to be content, but you will only be satisfied. You will only be content. You will only be happy if you find true joy. And true joy is delight in God. So that's what joy is. And then our second question, what is the foundation of joy? And I understand we're already answering that. But what is the foundation? Let's get more specific. What is the foundation of delight in God? What is the foundation of joy? What was, look at our text, what was the foundation of the shepherd's joy? Look closely what they were told. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then here is what they were told. Here is, I would say, the truth that was the foundation of their joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, there is some strange phrasing in that verse. I wonder if you caught it. Unto you, the shepherds were told. The shepherds were told, unto you is born this day this child. But this child was not born unto them. Was he? This child was born unto Mary and Joseph. This is just a few guys in a field. There's no childbearing happening in that field. None of those men were pregnant. None of those men had recently had a child, and yet the angel comes and tells them, for unto you a child is born. This is even more clear in the New American Standard Version. The New American Standard says, For today in the city of David, there has been born for you. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the New King James Version says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So put those together. According to this verse, this news that these shepherds were receiving is that Jesus was born unto them. Jesus was born to them. Jesus was born for them. For these shepherds, unsuspecting shepherds in a neighboring field. Jesus was born for them. Jesus was born to them. Jesus was born unto them. The angel is telling them, 
you've had a baby tonight. A child has been born, and he is your child in the sense that he is here for you. You're not here for this child. This child is not dependent on you. You are dependent on this child. And this child who has been born has been born unto you. The foundation of joy is Christ the Savior. That's the foundation. The truth, the news that was told to them was that this baby was born for them. And the truth is, this baby was born for you. This baby was born for you. All of you in this room. In such a way that if you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, you would be saved from your sin. So in conclusion, and I'm going to spend a few more minutes than usual concluding this sermon. I want to speak to those of you who are Christians and those of you who are not Christians. And unfortunately, you're not wearing the T-shirt, so I don't know who all of you are. Most of you are Christians here. That's a presumption on my part. It could be wrong. But most of you are Christians, and some of you struggle to find joy. Some of you struggle to find joy. I think a good question is, what if I don't have joy? What if I struggle to or don't delight in God? What if I don't delight in God right now? I think that is an especially important question this time of year. Despite what it may seem on the surface, this is a very difficult part of the year for many people. You might not think that superficially, because it is a time of great celebration. And there is a lot of sincere joy. And those who don't have joy can very easily, and for many reasons, including good ones, get swept up in that. And can project a degree of happiness and a degree of joy, especially when they're around other Christians who have the real thing. But deep down, it might not be sincere. It might not be heartfelt. The fact that everyone else seems so happy makes the fact that you're not even more difficult. It's a contrast. It's a sharp contrast. Where you feel obligated this time of year more than any other time of year to be happy and joyful. And you're not. You feel guilty about that. Circumstances may be difficult. Finances may be difficult. And you feel that especially at Christmas. So despite what it might look like, not everyone's happy at Christmas. So a good question is, what if I don't have joy? And so let me give you three, what I believe are biblical steps to take. And I think this is a, this is a, 
follow these steps and repeat. And it may be it may be several times a week, it may be several times a day. On a bad day, it may be several times an hour. But those of you who are Christians, if you're struggling to find joy, here are three steps. Number one, repent. Repent. Now that's going to go against your instinct. Repent. Apologize to God for not being happy. Express sorrow over your lack of joy. Ask God to forgive you for not being joyful. Repent. Can we say that? We can if we're commanded by God to be joyful. So if we're commanded by God to rejoice, if we're commanded by God to be joyful, if we're commanded by God to delight in God and we don't, well, that, like any other sin, is a sin that does need to be repented of. Let me read you a few scriptures so you know I'm not making this up because it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? You probably don't order your kids around like this. Hey, be happy. Right now. And we say it jokingly to our kids, right? If they're grumpy or surly. Hey, quit being grumpy. But if they just don't feel delight or joy, just like you don't feel delight or joy, doesn't that sound kind of harsh? Well, that's what the Bible says, Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. God's people are to, Romans 12.8, do acts of mercy cheerfully. Pastors are to, Hebrews 13.17, keep watch over souls with joy. You see what the Bible is saying? Pastors, keep watch over souls. That's not enough. Do it joyfully. Christians, be merciful and kind to other people. But that's not enough. You need to do it cheerfully. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, he'd give me something to do, and I'd go to do it, and he'd say, and do it with a smile on your face. And he meant, do it happily, do it cheerfully, do it joyfully. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So joy is clearly a command of God. And joy is clearly an emotional state of being. Delighting in God, enjoying God, happy in God. So hear God saying in a command, feel this way. Feel this way. Rejoice. Be joyful. Now, I think that's only, I think the reason that is right and just for God to command us this way 
is because he has given us the foundation for all joy. He's given us everything we need for joy. He's given us everything we need for satisfaction and contentment. He's given us everything we need. And so when I'm not joyful, when I'm not delighting in God, I'm ignoring the gifts that he's given me. And I need to repent. It's not excusable. That's step one. That's tough. Number two, pray. So number one, repent. Number two, pray. And if you want, just pray Psalm 51.12. This is how the psalmist prayed. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I'm sorry, I am not joyful right now. I am not delighting in you right now. And I know it's wrong. And I know I'm not glorifying you the way I should. Because you're glorified not when I just begrudgingly obey you, but when I cheerfully obey you. And, and, and when I enjoy you and the gifts that you have given me. I'm sorry, please forgive me, God. And then you pray. God, will you restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit? Just make that your prayer. Write it on a cord, on a card, write it on a sticky note, put it on the dash of your car, put it on your, put it on your mirror, put a reminder in your phone. Whatever it is that you do, repent and pray as you're struggling to find joy that God would give you joy. Restore. That means it's not there right now. Restore it, I pray. Repent, pray. Number three, number three, most importantly, if you're going to have joy, look to Christ by His Spirit in His Word. Look to Christ. And not look to Christ in some weird mystical way. Not close your eyes and imagine Jesus standing before you. Look to Christ by His Holy Spirit in His Word. Where do you see Jesus, Christian? In His Word. This is not just a book. This is God's Word. It is the author of Hebrews tells us it is living and active. It's alive. It's doing things. It's like a, a sword with two very sharp edges. It doesn't matter which way you're swinging this word. It does something. This is where we look to Christ. Very rarely, and I know I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. Very rarely have I met with someone or talked with someone who has little joy and much time in the Word. I actually can't think of an example right now, but maybe there is one. But rarely have I ever talked to or met with someone who's struggling to find joy and 
they're looking to Christ in his word. Repent, pray, look to Christ in his word. Wilhelmus Brackel said, the reason one does not rejoice in the incarnation, so in other words, the reason someone's not happy at Christmas, the reason someone does not rejoice in the incarnation is for lack of holy meditation upon the subject. It's miraculous nature, the promises, the person, the fruits, and this great salvation brought about by his suffering and death. What reason for rejoicing would he who does not attentively reflect upon this have? And that's a rhetorical question, and the answer is none. There's no reason for joy if we're not looking to Christ. So this is how we cultivate joy. This is how you cultivate joy. Look to Christ. Pray to Christ. Read his word. Thomas Watson said, There are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. So he looks out and says, All these wicked people are so happy. And they shouldn't be because they're going to hell. And all these godly people are so sad. And they shouldn't be because they're in Christ. That's a fair assessment of the world today. He goes on to say, dejection. So what's the deal here he's talking about in the godly? Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring. There's two reasons for it. Either because their inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts have been disturbed. You have no control over your outward comforts. I mean, zero control, really. They will be disturbed. God is a disturbing God. And He disturbs us throughout our life for very good reason. And so our outward comforts, they are going to come and go. But the challenge here is that we would not let our inward comforts be darkened. And my inward comforts, right, the good news of who Jesus is and who I am in Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing and what he has promised to do. These are my inward comforts and so much more. Take all the promises of the Bible. To have these inward comforts darkened will take away our joy. To keep our inward comforts from being darkened, we need to often shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our own souls. And we do that by looking to Christ, by His Spirit, in His Word. Joy comes from knowing God. Joy comes from knowing Christ. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy because you believe in Him. You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So those are three steps if you're trying to find joy. And please understand, like all steps in the Bible, like all prescriptions in the Bible, 
These are not follow step one, follow step two, follow step three. Yay. It gets your prize and gets your reward and you'll have joy. So run home and do these things. God, I'm sorry. Restore my joy. Read a verse and then like sit there and wait. That's not it. That's not how it works. But I'll tell you what, there will be no joy apart from this. It won't happen. These are the means. These are the means. God may wait. He may not restore the joy of your salvation as quickly as you would want him to. But we know his plans for us are good. And his intentions are good. And his plan is good. So we trust him. Now more briefly, some of you here are not Christians. And I guess the bad news is that if you were to stay not a Christian, you will never have joy. You will never have joy. You will never be truly happy. You will be without joy forever. Well, that means you will be without joy past when you die. You'll be without joy in this life, and there is a life to come, and you will be without joy in that life. So you need to hear that there is a way out of that. There is an escape from that. It is what the Bible calls the gospel. It is the good news. That you don't have to resign yourself to an eternity without joy. The good news is that, well, it starts with there is a God. There is a God, and He is good, and He is great. He made all things, including you, and He made you to love Him and worship Him. As I said earlier in the sermon, He made you to be happy, but He made you to be happy in Him alone. He made you to worship Him, to honor Him, to obey Him, to enjoy Him, and isn't the truth that you have not loved him? You have not obeyed him. You've rejected him. You've ignored him. You have gone your own way, which has not gone well for you. And it will not go well for you. When you die, your soul is going to live on. And your soul will either live on to God or away from God. And if you lived this life away from God on earth, when you die, your soul will be sent away from God and His goodness forever. The good news is that in spite of your sin, God is merciful. He's made a way. He's made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin. He's made a way for you to be righteous. He's made a way for you to be changed. He has made a way for you to be adopted into his family and live forever with him. And that way is Jesus. Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way. It's me. 
I am the only way to the Father in heaven. Jesus is the hero of the story. That's why we pray to him. That's why we sing to him. It's why we preach about him. It's why we read books about him. It's why we talk about him. It's why Christians are so obsessed with him because he is the hero. He is the hero of the story. He came for God's glory and for your good. He lived, he suffered, he died, he rose from the dead in the place of sinners just like you so that a sinner just like you could be reconciled to God. So the question is, What must you do to be saved by this great rescuer? You must confess your sin. And you must repent and turn from your sin. And you must turn to Jesus. And you must place your faith and your trust, all that you have in him. So that you may have joy in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would call people to yourself right now. That these words that I just spoke would go past ears and brains and into hearts. That people who don't know you. And don't believe in you would now know you and believe in you. That your living word by the spirit would pierce the hearts of people today. And God, I pray for those, my brothers and sisters who are here and are Christians, but who struggle to find joy. I'm thinking even of specific people now. And know the burden they carry. And the struggle that it has been, partly because of circumstances, not what they would hope or wish, and also because of inward comforts that are darkened. God, I pray that even now this morning, that the truth of your love for them and your grace toward them would not only be seen, but would be rejoiced in that they would be filled with gratitude and and thankfulness and delight and be enabled to praise you and worship you and enjoy you. And we ask that you would bless our time now of communion as we take this bread and this juice and as baptized believers, we remember and proclaim the death of your son on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you. So now, Lord Jesus, to you we give all praise, glory, and honor, and we pray in your name. Amen.